Welcome to the Complexity Premier Podcast. I'm your co-host, Yingyi An Cheng, Portfolio Management Director at Coolabar Capital. And Yingyi is, as always, joined by Christopher Joy. I'm a Portfolio Manager, also at Coolabar Capital Investments, uh, and we run the Smarter Money Investments suite of retail products, as well as the BetaShares Active Hybrid ETF product. Well, it's definitely been quite some time since our last episode, but we have quite a lot of content to cover today. Uh, So in particular, we are going to discuss CBA's new hybrid, Chris's debate with mega housing bear Steve Keane, the RBA's rate cuts and the coming of our long forecasted Aussie QE, whether traders are smarter than investors and why capitalism is dead. So Yingyi, let's talk about both markets and the new CBA hybrid deal. In terms of markets, we've seen some choppy cross currents. July for us was an outstanding month, um, a record month return-wise in some portfolios. There was a little bit of payback in August, it was somewhat soggy, uh, and then a rebound in September. Uh, In September, uh, we saw the floating rate note index up 0.12% or 12 basis points. The hybrid market did okay. That was up about uh, 0.15%. We saw the equity market perform robustly, up 2%. The laggard was the fixed rate (coughs) composite bond index, which was down uh, minus 0.49%, as there was a bit of an uptick in 10-year government bond yields. Over the last 12 months, In our active composite bond strategy, we've returned 14.6% versus the index is 11.1%. That's before fees. So that represents uh, our performance of about 3.5% or 350 bips. Uh, That's an institutional product. It is not available to retail investors. It's not available to the public, I should stress. Our zero duration uh, active credit alpha strategy, which is also an insto product, return 9.6% before fees. And we have created a benchmark for that product, which is uh, 3.5% above the bank bill rate. And the benchmark return was 5.4%. So we beat the benchmark by 4.3%. Let's now turn to October. Conditions have been, I think, a little more buoyant thus far in October. So we've actually had some pretty good returns uh, from fixed income markets, save for Uh, volatility in the last 24 hours when we're recording this episode. So we've seen um, the US slap a bunch of restrictions on Chinese companies and the travel of Chinese nationals involved in suppressing (coughs) Muslim minorities in China. Uh, And we've also seen um, an ongoing deterioration in uh, the Brexit talks between the UK and Europe. Kind of par for the course over the last 12 months. Ongoing trade and Brexit-induced volatility. In terms of uh, CBA's new hybrid deal, so they actually launched a deal today on the 9th of October. Um, And this is going to be, we think, a circa $1.5 billion hybrid deal. So pretty normal size, although it's all new money. What that means is there won't be any money rolling into the deal uh, from an existing maturity. That makes it actually quite chunky in size at $1.5 billion. They're pricing it at 300 basis points or 3% above the bank bill swap rate or BBSW. BBSW is currently at 0.84%. So you're looking at a running yield of 3.84%. Over the last month, according to our analysis, a seven and a half year hybrid issued by a major bank 
And this security will have a seven and a half year expected um, call or repayment date. The average spread uh, offered on securities of that term to expected repayment has been about 2.97% or 297 basis points. So the bottom line is the CBA deal is priced flat to the fair value curve. There is not a large new issue concession. We would have preferred to have seen a spread of like 310 to 320 basis points, not 300. Having said that, it's obviously uh, okay value, um, notwithstanding the absence of a uh, concession. And there are a couple of uh, factors that uh, would, I think, encourage one to be somewhat sanguine on hybrids, that is to say, um, you know, have a relatively benign slash constructive outlook. The first is that our forecast is that Australia's economic risk score will be upgraded by Standard & Poor's over the next 12 months. That would result, we estimate, in major bank hybrids being upgraded from double B plus to triple B minus into the all-important investment grade band. That's a very, very big deal and will attract a lot of institutional demand. A second uh, factor that we are thinking about is APRA is talking about changing the way the banks report their capital ratios and moving to an internationally harmonized model. The major banks' equity ratios are all around 10.5% today. On an internationally harmonised basis, they would all be around 15.5%. Now, hybrids get automatically converted into bank shares if the equity ratio falls to 5.125%. And if APRA allows the banks to keep the capital triggers on existing hybrids issued, particularly prior to the change in these reporting standards, at 5.125%, you're basically going to have a doubling in the so-called distance to default. So currently the gap's between roughly 10.5 and 5.125. That gap gap could grow to 15.5 to 5.125. That would be hugely positive for the hybrid market because it would radically reduce equity conversion risks. Another factor to bear in mind is the fact that you know, the cash rate's at 0.75%. It looks like it's heading lower and all interest rates are kind of converging towards zero. So the spread that you're getting today, 300 over a 75 basis point cash rate, is much more attractive than 300 over the 1.5% or 150 basis point cash rate 12 months ago. So we have actually been taking profits on our hybrid positions since after the election. But we do still have exposures. Uh, I think we will be participating in the CBA deal. To be clear, this is not personal financial advice and uh, please don't rely on any information that we're providing uh, for the purposes of your own investment uh, decision making. But um, that is how we are thinking about uh, some of uh, the analysis surrounding the security. We also run a ton of global and local models looking at the top-down fair value uh, for these securities and the bottom-up fair value for these securities. Specifically, we um, quantitatively forecast the likelihood of equity conversion and we make very conservative assumptions about that likelihood and what happens in the event that we're converted into equity. So in our bottom-up models, we assume a 1 in 8 to 1 in 10 probability that the hybrid is converted into equity. And we actually assume we get a 0% recovery in uh, equity conversion, so we get wiped out. And on that basis, the risk premium or credit spread we require above 
the risk-free rate, or more specifically BBSW in this case, is depending on the issuer, which major bank we're talking about, typically between 150 and 200 basis points, about where tier two subordinated bonds trade. Now clearly getting 300 over here. Yes, the tenor is slightly longer at seven and a half years, but that 300 uh, basis point spread is way above what our bottom-up models require in terms of minimum spreads. Um, we are also finally have the view that the default risk in T2 subordinated bonds and T1 hybrids is basically identical. We have a firm view that if APRA bails in T2 or T1, all securities will be bailed in at the same time. Yes, there's a capital structure hierarchy, but you're going to be bailed in and you're going to get zero. So your probability of default on tier two subordinate bonds and hybrids is basically the same. And your expected recovery is basically the same. And that then in turn means your expected minimum required return to take an exposure to these assets is the same. So at these levels, I'd much rather own major bank tier one at 300 over than major bank tier two at say 185 over. They're my thoughts, Yingers, on the CBA deal. Oh, actually, sorry, one final point would be that uh, 300 over is still well wide of um, the post-GFC tights. So major bank hybrids traded, traded as tight as 240 over in 2014, and we're trading at around 100 over in 2007 when CBA's equity ratio was only 4.7%. It's common equity tier one capital ratio versus you know a 10 to 11 percent equity ratio today so there's been a kind of circular uh, halving of cba's risk-weighted leverage and obviously the business models become much more risk averse very bad for cba shareholders it's very good for cba bondholders so without further ado ying yi i'll hand over to you so chris last week you debated and demolished your old foe dr steve Keen of doomsday fame on the contentious subject of Aussie housing. Now, Steve was the guy who garnered quite enormous media coverage for predicting a sensational 40% drop in house prices during the 2008 GFC. Uh, and a friend of ours, Rory Robertson, forced him to hike from you know Canberra to Mount Kosciuszko for getting that call woefully wrong. And indeed, you know, Aussie house prices are now 131% higher than where Keane expected them to be. So adjusted for the appreciation since 2008, Keane is now divining a 57% fall in the value of our bricks and mortar. So as with your debate earlier in the year with one of Keane's acolytes, gold promoter John Adams, which went viral online, this one ended with a brutal early knockout. Do you want to tell us about that? Yeah, Yingers, this was pretty funny. Um, it was a nationally televised debate between Keane and myself, hosted by Peter Switzer. You can see it for free on YouTube. And Keane presented a chart, and this was really the crux of his argument, and that highlighted the correlation between the change in household debt and house prices over time. And Keane declared really confidently that this chart represented his prediction for house prices. And just to quote him, he kind of smugly asserted that I think I do pretty well in saying what the ups and downs in house prices are using this model. But at that point, unwittingly, I think that he had opened himself up quite horribly. So in response, I asked Switzer to flash Keane's forecasting model back up on the screen. And I said, you know, Keane says he is a great forecaster, but I don't see any forecast on this chart for a 40% decline in house prices. 
In fact, the worst loss Keynes' so-called model projected was just a 10% decline in the 2008 crisis. The key point was that there was nothing remotely resembling the Armageddon Keynes had relentlessly preached, and which is, of course, the source of his um, outsized fame. So then Keane was completely blindsided, uh, and he kind of splutters, no, it wouldn't be forecasting. I'm not forecasting. I'm sort of saying that uh, this is drive the driving factor behind house prices. So after I'd politely stopped uh, or asked him to stop interrupting me because he'd kind of butted in the middle of my uh, soliloquy, I uh, retorted that Keane hadn't presented any analytical basis for a 40% decline in prices and Keane couldn't help himself so he interrupted again um, with what would ultimately prove to be his final fatal mistake. <clears throat> and that was um, this statement. It's not analytical, it's just my gut feeling. And so you know, he had really shown that the emperor has no clothes. And for the first time Keane had conceded that there was no evidentiary basis whatsoever for his scaremongering. He had, frankly put, simply pulled those unsubstantiated opinions right out of his skinny little ass. So, as I explained during this debate, and I'm, I'm vigilant and conscientious in explaining in all these um, housing debates, I can actually get very negative on house prices, as I did in April 2017 when we correctly projected a 10% national peak to trough loss. You know, Aussie house prices ultimately ended up falling between 2017 and May, June 2019 by 10.7%. And I can conceptualize situations where prices fall more than 20%. But the key point is that this requires a range of contingencies that don't exist today and nor are they likely to prevail anytime soon. Yes, Chris, the sharp recovery in house prices that we forecast here at Coolabari in April this year is coming to pass and on track to meet our contrarian projection for up to a 10% increase in national home values over the 12 months following, you know, the RBA's second rate cut. And this is because housing is, as Goldman Sachs argued last week, a key part of the monetary policy transmission mechanism. Sydney and Melbourne dwelling values are now up almost 4% since their trough in May and June, respectively. And Chris, you expect this brisk price action to continue with gusto. In this context, the RBA's governor, Phil Lowe, was right to cut the cash rate to a new record low of 0.75% last week. And the RBA has a legislated mission to deliver price stability and full employment. So while the latter objective has been historically subordinated to the RBA's focus on inflation targeting, Lowe knows that to get core inflation back to his desired 2% to 3% band, he has to first reduce the unemployment rate back down to its fully employed threshold. So the RBA used to think that full employment represented a jobless rate of 5%. But updated research suggests that it has trended down consistently over time and now lies somewhere between 4 and 4.4%, so miles below Australia's current jobless rate of 5.3%. If Lowe can get the 100,000 Aussies currently out of work who should be earning a pay packet back into jobs and eliminating excess labour market slack, wages growth and ultimately inflation will follow. 
The problem is that that low confronts an effective lower bound on his overnight cash rate of 0.5% below which the banks will not pass on rate changes to customers. Yeah, Yingus, if I could just add my two cents there. I do think that the banks were absolutely justified in only handballing through roughly half of the RBA rate cut. You know, the bottom line is as their return on equity approaches their cost of equity, they do need to really prioritise <coughs> profitability and solvency above these uh, subjective egalitarian notions of fairness. And, you know, I reckon this ineluctably brings one to the conclusion that the RBA has to embrace a broader range of tools to influence rates across the economy, including quantitative easing or QE, uh, which we were among the first to predict way back in May. In fact, I don't know anyone who had a central case that uh, was ours, which was quite unquote at the time, Aussie QE is coming. That was our central case. Everyone seemed to dismiss that possibility at that juncture. Suffice to say, today it's the consensus view. But it was obvious to us that the RBA would need to cut below 0.5% to satisfy its inflation and employment goals, which would ipso facto require QE if you have a lower bound at 0.5%. Well, Chris, during the week, Goldman Sachs belatedly came to the QE party and their Australian economists explained that replicating the RBA's large scale model of the Australian economy revealed that the RBA would need to implement a negative 1% cash rate if it wants to achieve its unemployment and inflation goals over its two to three year horizon. So assuming the RBA refrains from implementing negative rates in practice, Goldman estimate that an equivalent amount of stimulus could be delivered by lowering rates to their effective lower bound and implementing a QE program worth around $200 billion. One useful insight here was that the main conduit for the RBA stimulus would be a rebound in asset prices, particularly house prices, which provides a material tailwind to consumption and dwelling investment over the next few years. Crucially, Goldman finds that the impact of stimulus on other channels, including the Aussie dollar, is projected to be fairly muted. This is significant because it tells us that the RBA's QE program will, as the RBA has hinted, need to involve a package of measures. Limiting it to just purchases of government bonds to influence the Aussie dollar is just not going to do the job, as sure as night follows day. Well, it won't surprise you to hear this in year, but I wholeheartedly agree. And while the emergence of Aussie QE is a huge deal for investors and portfolio construction, I need to emphasise that it isn't really unconventional. The RBA's job is to manage interest rates across the economy. Limiting itself to just the overnight cost of risk-free borrowing, as represented by the cash rate, actually makes little sense given borrowers' debts price off rates that embed a credit risk premium. More precisely, the medium term cost of borrowing is of course made up of two key components. The first is the risk-free rate as proxied by (coughs) the RBA's cash rate or yields on uh, government bonds, uh, depending on whether it's a, a floating rate or fixed rate security, and a credit spread above these benchmarks. There is no no use in reducing government bond yields if this move is going to be offset by a widening of bank funding costs, which happens every other year. And there can be absolutely no concern about creating mispricings. I mean, the one thing we know for certain is that senior ranking 
bank bonds are trading on credit spreads in Australia right now that are eight to 10 times wider than they were before the crisis, despite a halving of the risk-weighted leverage on bank balance sheets. In other jurisdictions like Europe with less bank intermediation and much larger corporate bond markets where companies borrow directly from investors, the central bank has targeted risk-free rates, bank credit spreads, such as covered bank bonds, and purchased corporate bonds to reduce the risk premium on these securities. I can see you want to say something here. So, Yeah, but Chris, in Australia, the corporate bond market is tiny and offers no realistic opportunity for QE. This leaves the RBA with several options. It can reduce long-term risk-free rates by buying AAA-rated government bonds, which is in practice no different to what it does with its overnight cash rate, just at longer maturities. And this will put downward pressure on the exchange rate, which will furnish some stimulus. It can then also compress the cost of APRA-regulated bank intermediation and insist that these savings are passed on to both depositors and borrowers by extending out the term of its current liquidity operations. Now, the RBA lends directly every day to the banking system via so-called repurchase or repo arrangements, which are secured by collateral banks post with it. This collateral is known as a repurchase eligible or repo eligible asset and includes government bonds, highly rated senior ranking bank bonds and AAA rated asset backed securities. Under a repo transaction, the RBA buys these assets and then sells them back to the bank at a preset price in the future. It would, as a final simple option, be easy for the RBA to complement its purchases of government bonds with outright purchases of all assets that are already eligible for its repo facilities. Combined, these measures would have an enormous impact on the overall cost of borrowing. It is, therefore, misguided to think that the RBA has run out of ammo. It still has enormous firepower that has yet to deploy. So... Chris, when you're not out hunting housing bears, you appear to enjoy tracking great white sharks through our specialized search and rescue drone. And your recent efforts to thwart one potential shark attack were covered by global media, including CNN, Fox News, Channel 7 and others. Do you want to tell our listeners about that? Yeah, the great shark hunter. Um, It's pretty funny. Uh, I guess I've always loved animals since I was a kid. I wanted to be a vet, wanted to live on a farm. Naturally did (laughs) neither of those two things. And we'd spent a a lot of time um, on the south coast. And I had seen from the beach quite a few sharks. And obviously when the drone technology emerged... I decided to acquire a drone and the minute I started flying I was seeing sharks every which way and actually 12 months ago uh, I spotted two bronze whalers, big 3-4 metre beasts uh, right off the beach and the, vid- uh, the video footage was such high resolution and um, of reasonably good quality that it got picked up. In fact, I I spotted a great white uh, on the drone a year ago, cruising by a bunch of people on the beach, and then the bronze whalers, and the great white was picked up by UK media, and Channel 9 ran on the Channel 9 News, uh, the bronzies, um, which is still very dangerous. They probably killed 15 to 20 people, and uh, at least two guys have died from bronzies in the last 
a few years since 2011. Um, recently, I bought a search and rescue drone and it has an emergency speaker system which allows me to blast warnings to people if there are sharks in close proximity and also has a thermal imaging camera of course uh, you know great whites are warm-blooded and a bunch of other fancy technology and i happened to be flying it off wherry beach and spotted this uh, large three to four meter look like a great white and it was probably about 10 meters off the beach and there was a single lone surfer and <clears throat> you can see on the footage the the great white starts barreling towards the surfer heading straight for him at reasonable pace he looked like he had a, a pretty clear intent and then I instantaneously blasted what I actually I pre-recorded a shark alert and it sort of sounds pretty uh, alarming it's kind of like shark 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 evacuate the water immediately and you can hear it from 500 meters away so the dude on this big longboard <clears throat> it was about a three four meter longboard and the shark was at least as big as the longboard he hears this looks up absolutely flips out swings his board around and the shark in the process uh, gets spooked so thankfully uh, the shark was heading towards him it was probably three four meters away and then when the guy suddenly turns the board around the shark bolts it gets a fright um, and then i follow the shark we've set up a youtube channel um, called the coolabar capital search and rescue drone so if you google that you'll see it and I got some uh, absolutely killer footage, uh, excuse the pun, only last weekend down the south coast. You can see this big Bronte cruising along the beach. Within a few meters from people, I had to evacuate the beach um, using the shark alert uh, system three times on that day. At one point I saw five Bronzies together hunting as a pack, but they were basically moving up and down the beach. They're beautiful beasts. I love these animals. Um, I've also got quite a few big great whites um, that I've got very, very close-up shots of, including one very, very large pregnant female. She was either pregnant or had recently ingested a dolphin because there's this massive bulge in her gut. And yeah, I mean, I guess some guys play golf. Other folks watch football. I like hunting sharks. Yeah, so it's pretty funny. Under the Coolabar logo, we have a tagline, which is uh, every basis point counts. And we've created a new logo, which is Coolabar Capital Search and Rescue. And then the tagline is every life counts. <laughs> well, on another note, um, so Chris, while you were studying at Cambridge University in 2003, you got a letter from the former US Secretary of State, Henry Kissinger, uh, inviting you to meet him in New York. And as one would expect, you embrace that opportunity and it gave you some insights into the juxtaposition of traders versus investors. So tell us, what was Kissinger like? Yeah, it was pretty interesting years. I recall walking into his stuffy office overlooking Park Avenue and it was adorned with literally hundreds of photos of Kissinger standing alongside heads of state and uh, other dignitaries. And given his wealth of experience, I asked him, you know, what le life lessons he would pass on to a 26-year-old, you know, trying to make his way in the world. A former Harvard academic, and he was obviously a long-time uh, geopolitical advisor, Kissinger offered two key insights. The first was to publish policy work while I was still young, and that would resonate through time. And the second was to exploit every prospect that was randomly presented rather than trying to execute a long-term grand plan. 
And I remember um, Kissinger saying in his sort of gravelly baritone, you know, all my Harvard peers had these ambitious five-year strategies. I just opportunistically capitalised on my openings as and when they materialised. And I do think that this logic has important ramifications for investing. I often hear folks say that they can get their long-term forecasts right, but not the short-term. Yet statistically, nothing is further from the truth. It is much easier to predict the short-term correctly than trying to divine outcomes over many years. And that's why the greatest investors in history, like the um, you know billionaire mathematician John Simons, who founded Renaissance Technologies, you know, they exploit short-term rather than long-dated mispricings, where the ex-ante probability of being right is higher because there is less scope for external events to perturb their profits. And I think it's also why the oft-claimed distinction between traders and investors, quote-unquote, is really utterly fallacious. All good traders and investors have a view on where fair value lies, and they seek to pick up assets that are trading at levels that deviate from them, and which have a strong likelihood of mean reverting. You know, consider two investors with the same endowments of talent exploiting the same quantum of mispricing on the same asset. And suppose the reasonable expectation for one is that the mispricing will close in a few hours, while the other uh, faces a situation where they believe the mispricing will take weeks to normalise. Since uncertainty grows as a function of time, or more specifically with the square root of time, uh, intelligent investors will always take that first trade rather than the second, given it has a higher probability-weighted expected return. And yet I regularly come across individuals who think that those quote-unquote investors targeting long holding periods, that is most fund managers, are superior to quote-unquote traders like Simons and in his own way Kissinger and frankly ourselves who relentlessly optimise opportunities over the short run. And, you know, I reckon an unwitting adherent to Kissinger's doctrine is the Reserve Bank of Australia. You know, my beloved Martin Place brethren are, to their credit, the first to admit that they cannot forecast much, if anything, beyond 12 months, despite the army of, you know, circa 800 analysts that they have at their disposal. When the RBA's board meets every month, they have to make decisions based on really highly imperfect information that is available to them at that time. Glenn Stevens used to say now casting, which is figuring out what is happening in the present, is actually much more valuable than guessing about an unknowable future. And when I played rugby, when I was a rampaging hooker for the uh, Victorian schoolboys, vice-captain, I should add, one of our aphorisms was, quote-unquote, small steps. You chain those together and the game will look after itself. A similar maxim you know, we used to adopt on the tennis court, and admittedly, whilst I did play in the first for tennis as well, um, I think I used to outthink myself. But what my coaches would say is focus on winning each individual point and the game's sets and match will follow. Think too far ahead and you can lose sight of the present. And I guess in this context, Governor Phil Lowe uh, knows that to meet his mandated through the cycle price stability and full employment goals, he has to use the full spectrum of tools at his disposal to reduce the jobless rate from its current 5.3% level towards that circa 4 to 4.4% range we talked about. The BRBA estimates will exhaust that excess labour supply uh, that you mentioned, Yingers, without precipitating unruly wage pressures. 
Yes, of course, there are tail risks. But I think Lowe is emphatically correct when he argued uh, recently that the nascent housing recovery is not currently a concern. Even after our expected 10% pop in prices, which we're projecting through to June 2020, home values will not have increased for three years. That is to say, they will have just recovered the losses over uh, the period um, 2017 to 2019, while credit growth remains utterly uninspiring years. And Chris, Lowe likewise knows that the brilliant former professional tennis player come treasurer, Joshua Frydenberg, is not going to give him any loving with fiscal stimulus after delivering their first full year budget surplus. And Jay Fry himself was right to forcefully submit recently that overeager regulators should not apply Australia's asinine responsible lending laws in a way that fundamentally shifts the legal liability for repaying a loan from the borrower to the lender, as your column in the AFR has argued on numerous occasions. Our banks have maintained among the lowest mortgage default rates in the world for many decades, despite internationally high interest rates. There is just not a shred of evidence that there is any systematic irresponsible lending in the APRA regulated domain. We cannot say the same for the non-banks, which is why we generally avoid securities issued by them here at Coolabar. In the last few months alone, two Australian non-bank lenders have defaulted on their senior bonds. And it's truly madness to think that Aussie banks could be buying non-bank bonds for their emergency liquidity books when the loans backing these securities are not subject to full APRA oversight. The bank trader that wants to maximise his yields but doing so undermines the integrity of the bank's liquidity book while bizarrely supporting its fierce non-bank rivals with funding. On the subject of the search for yield, one question that we are regularly asked is whether retail investors should be switching from major bank hybrids, which have performed exceptionally well over the last 12 months, into the tsunami of high yield listed investment trusts or LITs that have been raising large amounts of money by paying brokers and advisors huge, what we consider conflicted sales commissions of up to 2% or 3% of the capital that they source from naive retail and wholesale investors. Major bank hybrids currently have a double B plus credit rating, which puts them just below the cusp of the so-called investment grade band that runs from triple B to triple A. The new high yield bond LITs often invest in US and European double B and B rated bonds or direct loans that have no rating at all. Five year major bank hybrid credit spreads are presently paying about 2.7% above the quarterly bank bill swap rate or BBSW. In the US, lower rated double B high yield bond credit spreads are trading at a lesser 2.4% above the equivalent LIBOR benchmark. So on a like-for-like basis, US high-yield securities offer inferior returns. We are further forecasting that S&P will upgrade the major banks' hybrids into the triple B minus category, where currently the average five-year credit spread is about 1.7% above BBSW, or 100 basis points lower than what you get on the major bank hybrids. Yes, uh, Ying, as given the recent hybrid rally, I've also been asked whether now is a good time to take profits. And as we mentioned earlier, yes, it might be, but not to switch into foreign high yield. 
The reduction in credit spreads on both major bank hybrids and double B-rated US debt has been almost identical since their respective wides in late 2018. There are other complications to consider. One thing we avoid like the plague is buying high yield debt from corporates with much higher internal business model risks than you get with large Aussie banks and insurers. Everyone knows the $143 billion bank that is CBA with its world-beating AA- credit rating is you know, something that they are generally familiar with. You know, They will bank with CBA, they probably have uh, CBA transaction accounts, deposits, uh, and may own CBA equities. This presents a striking contrast <clears throat> with the largest exposure in, you know, for example, one recently listed um, ASX LIT. And that exposure is the Brazilian oil company Petrobras, which carries a junk or high yield credit rating of just double B minus. That's some nine notches below CBA's double A minus rating. I would personally much rather buy a double B plus rated uh, hybrid from CBA than a similarly rated instrument from Petrobras, given the radically lower business model risks the big Australian bank carries, as reflected by its um, significantly superior issue rating. Another problem with retail punters allocating to foreign high yield is hedging costs. You used to be able to improve your total returns materially by hedging US fixed income, so US high yield, into Aussie dollars. Nowadays, doing so reduces your returns by more than 1% annually because the RBA's cash rate is below, not above, the US Federal Reserve's cash rate. This unattractive risk and return trade-off is compounded by LIT fees, which often add up to significantly more than 1% annually. Uh, the LITs, they're trying to deal with this panoply of problems in three ways, I reckon. First, they invest in even riskier bonds with much, much lower credit ratings and hybrids uh, to get that extra yield to compensate for you know, hedging costs and fees. Secondly, they assume some large uh, interest rate duration risk by allocating to fixed rate bonds, uh, not floating rate bonds. So all hybrids are floating rate. And so some of the ASX uh, high yield LITs have got a hell of a lot of interest rate risk, uh, which all else being equal will make them much, much more volatile. So have a much higher probability of loss than the same securities with the same credit rating, but which have a floating rate interest profile rather than a fixed rate profile. This means that in addition to outright credit risk, investors are adding on another source of capital loss, uh, which is changes in long-term interest rate expectations that frankly nobody can predict. A third and final return driver is leverage. And the two most recent high-yield LITs that we've seen come to market, uh, Partners Group and KKR, have allowed themselves to use leverage of between 30% and 50% of the capital they've raised from mums and dads. So you're talking about leveraging uh, a liquid high yield uh, to further soup up returns. And, you know, I think that doing so, that is to say, uh, leveraging liquid junk bonds issued by companies that retail investors know absolutely nothing about is a bit of a recipe for disaster. Uh, a final consideration is relative value. Major bank hybrids at the five-year tenor are currently paying credit spreads, as you mentioned, years of about 2.7% uh, above the quarterly bank bill swap rate, which is actually 2.7 times higher than they were before uh, all the spreads on uh, major bank hybrids were trading at before the global financial crisis in 2007, despite the fact that the major banks um, have, as we mentioned, more than half their risk-weighted leverage. In contrast, high-yield or double-B-rated corporate bonds in the US are trading on credit spreads that are actually lower 
than their mid-2007 levels, while corporate leverage has been increasing, not decreasing. I think this comparison is super important. So you know, hybrid spreads are trading 2.7 times you know, wider than 2007 levels, whereas you know, US high yield spreads are actually trading at tighter spreads than they were in 2007. The second key point is whilst bank business models have got much, much safer, corporate business models in the US are getting, are getting riskier. So I think at the very, very least, you want to do your due diligence. Yeah, you know, I'd be loath to push these products if I was receiving these commissions. And if you are being pushed the products, I think you want to understand what the vested interests are of the person who is very, very enthusiastically promoting them. Chris, I want to finish off by talking about your recent hypothesis that capitalism is dead. You argued that in response to the 2008 crisis, central banks and treasuries threw the baby out with the bathwater. More specifically, unable to tolerate the pain associated with capitalism's most important attribute, i.e. creative destruction, or the cathartic process by which markets punish bad businesses and reward good ones, government agencies decided that they would take control of private market prices when the signals embedded in them wrought too much disruption. Is that what you were saying? Yeah, they did this by buying all manner of bonds to manipulate the short and long-term risk-free discount rate that investors use to price the present value of the cash flows produced by all assets. And when that wasn't enough, governments bought direct stakes in companies, including many banks and equities more broadly. The conventional idea of capitalism that has powered prosperity for more than half a century by respecting market signals, freely moving market signals, it doesn't exist. While it may not be socialism, it is certainly, in my view, statism. And since central banks and treasuries have got into the business of directly managing market prices, they've never been able to get out. It's just way too tempting years to try to control your destiny rather than leaving it to the whims of capricious investors. Ask Xi Jinping. He knows all about this. Ironically, given the current global trade turmoil, the West and China have never had more in common in terms of the economic policies they espouse. And after the ECB committed to launching a new round of asset purchases, or QE, we've now seen that the Fed has been forced into the same thing. And of course, as we've long argued, the RBA is not far behind. So the Fed recently spent US $128 billion expanding its balance sheet to soothe markets. And it continues to reinvest the proceeds of the trillions of dollars of assets it bought during the crisis into purchases of bonds rather than allowing its balance sheet to shrink. Merrill Lynch estimates that the Fed will have to buy about US $400 billion in additional government bonds over the next year to ensure that the private sector, heaven forbid, is not lumbered with this responsibility. After all, someone has to fund President Trump's record budget deficits, and doing so has sucked capital away from short-term financing markets, which has radically increased the volatility of the interest rates in this crucial sector. In one recent auction, the cost of borrowing overnight in the US spiked from 2.25% to 10%, which was the first time this had happened since 2008. And there's no doubt that profligate fiscal policy is emerging as a post-crisis thematic. 
when your central bank can print as much money as it wants and fund all your debt at crazy cheap levels, as the Japanese and to a lesser extent the Americans do, there's no practical limit on how big your budget deficits can get. You are insulating yourself from any market disciplines because your central bank, rather than investors, is setting your cost of capital at artificially low levels. So, you know, I think, ying yi, we live in a world where all asset prices are fake and unilaterally inflated. Forget fake news, we're talking about fake prices. Even in Australia, house prices are appreciating again, not because of some underlying imbalance between demand and supply, but because the RBA, in its defence, is being compelled to respond to lowest common denominator global policies that have created a beggar thy neighbour currency war. In an Australian government bond fund today, you earn almost no interest at all after fees. The more profound question is what could possibly reverse this new global statism as we kind of refer to it? The only tractable explanation is I can conceive of is inflation. So long as there are no costs to running zero interest rate policies, buying privately traded assets and financing your own gargantuan budget deficits Myopic politicians and their proxies will always take the popular route. Jobless rates in the US, UK, Canada, Australia, New Zealand are all at historically very low levels, some at record low levels, all bid on the back of fake economic growth. That is to say, growth powered by zombie businesses that would never survive in a normalised interest rate world. Nobody is going to voluntarily kill off these bad businesses to make room for the much more productive and sustainable concerns, as, for example, the 1991 recession here in Australia did. But if we can manufacture fake growth, endless money printing can engineer inflation over the long run. And, you know, it's our view that a curtain raiser for this event materialised stealthily in 2018. Contrary to the popular myth that wages growth is dead, in the US, labor costs have been trending high from their 2012 year, around 1.5%, and they hit a peak of 3.4% in actually February this year, which was a touch below their pre-crisis highs in 2007, around 3.6%. This freaked out bond markets, pushing the 10-year government bond yields last year to over 3.2% in November 2018, which in turn shocked equity investors given the surge in the discount rate. We called it the discount rate effect. Uh, and that precipitated, naturally, as you'd expect, a huge drawdown in US shares of about 20% last year peaked a trough. If global central banks and treasuries continue to push jobless rates lower, higher wages growth is inevitable in countries with healthy population growth. This should eventually feed into consumer price inflation. Of course, policymakers will want to ignore this inconvenient truth initially, with the Fed authoring the new playbook. Chairman Powell is starting to argue that the Fed can tolerate higher inflation because they've undershot their target for more than a decade. Yet, if higher inflation does eventually grip and bleeds into inflation expectations, bond markets will have the mother of all meltdowns. The solution, of course, will be for nation states to further disintermediate private agents by buying all the bonds on issue to keep a lid on rising interest rates. This will do nothing, however, to thwart inflation. Indeed, it will simply encourage more. So, in conclusion, the end game, I think, will be an invidious choice between high interest rates and a radical restructuring of the economy, killing off zombie businesses and crushing levered asset prices, and the alternative, which will be high inflation, no productivity, and declining living standards. 
So that's all, folks. Listen, thanks to all those who persevered with this uh, longer-than-normal podcast. Uh, as you has mentioned, it's been uh, some time between drinks. I think we published our last podcast in the middle of August. Really appreciate the engagement and the feedback. We're now getting uh, thousands of downloads per episode, um, which is a terrific outcome. This was always intended to be a very high-end product that was only suitable for sophisticated wholesale investors. So hopefully uh, you enjoy us sharing our ideas on a semi-regular basis at this destination. Don't hesitate to reach out to me personally. The best way to do so is to send an email to info at coolabarcapital.com or you can just go christopher.joy at coolabarcapital.com and we're pretty communicative and responsive. Otherwise, uh, look after yourself, be safe and be good. This podcast does not provide financial advice. It is not an invitation to invest in any financial product and the information in it should not be relied on for any decisions. All views expressed represent the personal opinions of the speaker and do not represent the view of any other party. If this recording contains reference to any financial products, that reference does not constitute advice or a recommendation and should not be relied upon. Listeners in Australia are encouraged to visit the moneysmart.gov.au website to obtain information regarding financial advice and investments.